This is Sacred Tension, the podcast about the spiritual discipline of asking questions. My name is Stephen Bradford Long, and I am still here with my co-host for this series, Timothy Wilds. Hello. <laughs> Sorry. Very good. <laughs> I was dozing. A bit, a bit of a, a bit of a delayed response. Um, we moved studios to away from the refrigerator. So. Yes. Uh, so now we're in a bedroom in an apartment. Oh dear. Well, don't let that get out. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> so we are still talking about the Revoice Conference. We are doing a blow by blow response to the keynotes. If you have no idea. Well, first of all, if you are new to Sacred Tension, hello, it's great to have you here. Please go back and listen to the first Revoice episode. You won't be lost. <laughs> that, that way you will know what we're talking about and you'll be all caught up. All right. So now that you are all caught up on these episodes, we are still talking about Revoice and we're moving on to the next testimony, which is by Ray Lowe, who is an Asian American pastor and i really liked him oh yeah as a person i really liked him and i think of all the speakers he was the one who i kind of felt the least threatened by he and amber were the mm -hmm. two mm -hmm. who i felt who i who i think i would i would be the most comfortable around absolutely yeah and, and just very very sweet very kind very disarming person and i really appreciated his presence so uh ray told just the most heartbreaking horrific story <laughs> mm -hmm. uh for the testimony so i think the theme of this particular video is lament and so we're we're covering all the things that you know celibate gay christians lament over he he starts by talking about his calling to become a minister and how he did everything right. How he worked really hard. He was he did everything perfectly. And that on paper, he was the perfect candidate. And that all his friends said, you know, it'll be wonderful to have an, a gay pastor. Because who else could speak more powerfully to the rejected, to the lost, to the hopeless than someone who's gay and has experienced all that hurt and rejection firsthand. But he said that he got out into the world and discovered that that was not the case. And after he got ordained or av after he left seminary, he started trying to go to, you know, apply to different churches as a minister, and he was constantly turned down, constantly denied. It's really sad. One, he says that one church said that he was the perfect candidate on paper, but that his sexual, but that his sexuality uh, was a problem for them mm -hmm. and that they could not accept him on the basis of that, even though he affirmed the traditional Christian ethic. This is reminding me while I'm talking about it, and this is a tangent, but let me go down it for just a minute. So he's responding to the horrible treatment at the hands of conservative Christians. And I want to take a moment to say that there has been a lot of horrific criticism of the Revoice Conference as a whole for being so, for being so affirming of the gay identity. And so this is what people in... By, by which group? 
by the the more even right. Yes, exactly. Right. Yeah, by yeah. the more right. And so this is this is the rejection that people within the traditional sexual ethic that gay people within the traditional sexual ethic are dealing with. They are dealing with this wholesale rejection of LGBT identity. And so Raylo was coming up against this. He says that he did finally find a church. He was a youth pastor. For a very short time. For a very tragically short period of time. Because another church, a completely separate church that he had nothing to do with... Ratted him out. Ratted him out. Wrote a letter to the church, and the headline was, Ray is gay. Or something like that. Ray is a homosexual. Something like that. And... Of course, it devastated Ray, and then the news spread all over the church. He said that the parents started gossiping behind his back. They started threatening to pull their kids from the youth group and leaving the church. And he said that he kept trying and trying and trying to present what he actually believed, which is the traditional ethic, that he agrees with church teaching, but they wouldn't listen to him. They wouldn't give him the time of day. And then he... Phobia. Phobia just took complete control. Phobia took complete control. And then his senior pastor told him, or the the pastors told him that he no longer is a pastor at that church. Not fired, but resigned. But resigned. Yes, he said that. You know, if you were to ask them what happened in the summer of 2017, uh, that he resigned. Mm Mm-hmm and not fired for being gay. You know, one of the notes I took is that early on when he was trying to interview and find a place, that even though he probably was the cream of the crop, you know, one church actually said to him, we would consider we would consider you a danger. That's right, a, I forgot a, about yeah. that. And you're just going, you know, you could not have a candidate that's more in your camp. And I'm just like, then what the fuck am I? I must just, I'm just Satan. Oh, well, yeah. Well, I am a Satanist. (laughs) So, anyway. (laughs) Thank you for waking up to the world we already know, Stephen. Thank you. (laughs) So, he says that he sunk into a horrific depression. And that, here's a quote. Not everyone is called to marriage, even straight people, but everyone, yes, everyone, is called by God to a beautiful and wonderful purpose. And that was enough to keep me going in life because even if I never found a romantic partner, at the very least, I was always called to do something with my life, to make a difference in this world, to make life matter. But then he goes on to say that he felt like the church took that purpose from him. Totally. So if he can't have his life purpose and if he can't have a partner, then what is there to live for? And he came very, very close to killing himself. Mm-hmm. And he does point out that uh, LGBT people are four times more likely to kill themselves than straight and cisgender people. This is the point when I have to turn to the camera and interrupt the story and and make a, a killjoy observation. I'm horrified by the situation, and I really grieve for Ray. I hope that, I mean, this was very recent. I mean, this was last summer. This was in the summer of 2000. This is just a little over a year ago. Yeah, this is just a little over a year ago. I got to imagine that this still hurts, that he's still suffering from this. And so I, I grieve for that. I hope he's getting the love and support and help that he needs to, to continue to, to work through this. I also have to say 
that I too almost committed suicide, but it was because of the theology that he espouses. Hmm. It wasn't because people were cruel to me. People were not cruel. In fact, a lot of the people around me were very loving, much like the people who are speaking at this conference. Mm-hmm. It wasn't for lack of love. It wasn't for lack of care. And it wasn't for lack of fellowship. It was because I found the beliefs themselves so deeply, intrinsically damaging to me, no matter how much people may, may have insisted that they were otherwise. Mm-hmm. And so this is all very hard. This story is deeply tragic. I really like Ray. I also have to push the pause button on this story and say, you know, me too. Mm-hmm. I was almost there. And I was almost there because of this theology. I don't know very many people. Well, I could just put a period on that. I don't know very many people. Okay. Uh, <laughs> sorry. I don't know very many people who have shared their story with me and we have similar stories who won't admit that being done with life seemed like a better solution. Yeah. I mean, it's not an uncommon scenario for people who live in a culture and especially people who are spiritually aware and spiritually oriented, i.e. maybe even Christian, you know, to be to find such stark homelessness in the church. Yes. And, you know, I have to say, Ray was valiant, and he marshaled on through his speech, his address, and did not hold back in calling out the church for its cruelty. Yes, which I really, really appreciated. I did too. But you know what was sad to me was in the end, it seems like his only consolation, his only consolation for his plight was the laying down of his life for others. Yeah, I was actually just about to talk about that. Yeah, I was, please do. Yeah, I was about to bring that up because I, I caught on to that too. I am a member of the 12 Steps, and so, so much of my life is filtered through the 12-step program, recovery program. And I'm in a program called CODA, which is Codependence Anonymous. And it's exactly what it sounds like. I was a, I was, I am, I'm a raging recovering codependent. And he said that, you know, when he was in the midst of very deep despair and on the verge of death, he heard the voice of God say, lay down your life. To lay down his life for the sheep, and for all the other people who need love, and for the LGBTQ community, and for the church. And he says that sometimes you have to stay alive, not because of what you will get from the world, but because of what we will give to it. And he says, quote, I knew right then that I had to lay down my life over and over and over again every single day for this world, no matter how much it killed me to do so. Recipe for codependence. I I get the appeal of this. I really do. It it's it well, it's seemed, very noble. It's very noble. It really is. And I would even argue not inconsistent with orthodox Christian theology. I would argue that too. Where I would disagree is at the very end where he says no matter how much it killed me to do so. There it is. There it is. It matters how much this kills you. It really really does. For for anyone who feels like they have to dismiss how much these experiences are quote-unquote killing them, you can 
acknowledge that it is killing you and that that is not okay. And here's, here's a possibility. And here's something that I came to realize about myself. If I really want to change the world, then being in a state of constantly being killed by it will not create sustainable change. If I really want to be a saint, if I really want to change the world for the better, not being in a constant state of survival is the way I do that, right? Otherwise, my impact will be much less. So I, I want to encourage people to consider that maybe the way to change the world is to be full, is to be complete. And when things are killing The glory you, of God is the human. What is the glory it? of God is man fully alive, to quote St. Ignatius. Uh-huh. I'm partnered with a Jesuit. I have okay. the Jesuit stuff down. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, it, it's almost like, and I don't want to be too exposing here of you, Stephen, but I know that in your past, when you were dealing with deep anxiety and depression, you fell into habits of doing certain things. Oh, yeah. I've talked about that on the show. I mean, uh, this is not a visual medium, but my arms have hundreds of scars. Yeah. Hundreds of scars, if you look closely. So what's the difference between that and Ray saying... And this. Yeah. yeah. What is the difference? It's almost like... He is, it's almost like a kind of emotional and spiritual cutting. Yeah. And, and of course, you know, if we're wrong about this, Ray can always correct us. Maybe we're hearing something. Exactly. Maybe we're mishearing something. And I'm open to that being a possibility. But I hear his words here and my heart just kind of breaks. Mm -hmm. And I get really worried because I worry about this message encouraging people to just push into burnout. Mm-hmm. It really that I can't see any other way. I can't see <laughs> I can't see how it's anything other than that. Pushing people into really really intense burnout instead of listening to themselves. I will also, you know, express my bias. I'm a yoga teacher. My partner works in suicide prevention and is a therapist. As a family, we are caretakers. As a family, I mean, we and I work at a company that that feeds people who otherwise would not be able to afford good, healthy food. So, and I do this podcast in my in my writing, and so like, I'm in a family that spends all of its time and all of its energy caring for others. Mm-hmm. And our baseline is how do we reduce suffering? Mm-hmm. And that's my bias. Our constant question is how do we reduce suffering? And so I hear this and I can only hear a lot of unnecessary suffering. I want to ask you how his approach to moving on in his life, if, if what he has said to us about this, this daily surrendering approach to laying down life as a sacrifice unto God and to the world and to those around him, which again, I, I just have to say that's, I believe that. Yeah, I do. I believe that. However, you know, this also came up in, this has also been one of these, these threads that have run through these, these talks is this concept of, it's almost a call to a, to a, a kind of pietism that almost endorses a kind of martyrdom. Does that make any sense to you? It is. Uh, what what really worries me about it is something that worries me about a lot of Christian doctrine in general, which is I think it shuts down our emergency sensors. Mm-hmm. 
for, you know, all the cues within us to say danger, danger, you know, we're, we're headed towards burnout, we're headed towards a breakdown. This requires a lot of those to be removed because of what I will simply call the prison of belief. And I can just speak for myself. I was unable to remove my hand from the fire because I believed to do so would be sinful. It was the ideology that kept me in place. And that is a prison. That is what Lawrence Wright calls a prison of belief when he wrote about Scientology Mm -hmm. and how it forces us religious ideology. And I'm a fan of religion. I am deeply religious. But one of the results of unhealthy religion is that it becomes a prison of belief that forces us to ignore our own vital signs Mm -hmm. and self-care. I think I think this is precisely why the the rhetoric that comes through with with almost that comes through almost all six of these is if you are if you are from that evangelical loom and you're being woven into something you're hearing a lot of really familiar talk here and given given the evangelical the the historically evangelical directive you know to be obedient to be submissive to be you know moldable you know i am thou art the potter i am the clay and the fact that you are so unceasingly reminded of your putridness <laughs> your sinfulness which again, don't want to come off as a heretic. I'm not saying there's no such thing as sin. I'm just saying there is this kind of unquenchable fire of self-hatred that so easily, I think, grows in people like you and me who are in this context. And you just can't quench it. Yes, until you leave. And Well, until you leave. Yeah, I mean, and that, that's the other thing that I, that I often want to bring up is there's just the reality that no amount of kindness, no amount of hospitality, no amount of love can quench this fire. <laughs> True. You know, it, it, for a lot of people, it's really between two choices. And this was what it came down for me. Stay and die, leave and live. And, it, and that was it. Mm-hmm. Either I stay and die and I slowly commit suicide or rapidly, depending on mm-hmm. how this path goes, or I leave and quench that fire of self-loathing. And and I, this is where just the lived experience, the, there is this dissonance between lived and experience where there is the, the dissonance between what people experience and what the church says and what the traditional ethics says. And it's just so complicated, this complicated necessity to leave the traditional ethic. And I'm always just left wondering, how do people respond to that well? You know, how does the traditional ethic respond to that? What is a good life-giving way to respond to that? I'm not sure yet that I've seen one because clearly kindness doesn't cut it. Mm-hmm. It's a good start. It's important. But kindness alone will not quench this fire. And so what what do people on on that what do people who believe the traditional Christian ethic what do they say to people like me for whom the option truly was to leave and how would you minister to me mm-hmm. you know how would you evangelize me how would you minister to me how would you be a pastor to me and that's often what i find myself asking and that's where i feel like this theology just rams up against reality you know and you know given given the consciously literal 
biblical interpretation that guides virtually all of these speakers in the words that they speak. You know, they would say, you can stay and you can suffer and inherit a great reward, or you can leave and basically cast yourself perilously towards the darkness. I mean, it's it's mm-hmm. just, <laughs> it's, so, I mean, it is. And if those are the stakes, yeah. no wonder people break. Well, yeah. If those are the stakes, no wonder people have psychotic breaks. You know, here's, you can choose between you, you, you know, door number one or door number two, and you will say, please, is there a three? <laughs> exactly. Is there a door number three, please? Exactly. And, you know, we may soften the blow. We may try to sweet talk it. We may try to sell it. We may try to make it much. We may say, well, we're going to really love these options once we understand how good God is. That's just not going to cut it. You know, he, he uh, ends his story by saying that he did finally find another church and that he is happily pastoring there, and I'm really happy for him. He ends with this sentence, Maybe you and I are called to show the world that the greatest love is not always found in a marriage, but in the laying down of your life for your friends. That's great. But I would also say that there's the laying down of life in a marriage too. Mm-hmm. You know, that the laying down of life happens in, in all healthy relationships, including marriage and friendship. There's the laying down of a life in a marriage, in a partnership, in a relationship, at work, at church, at your favorite Starbucks, in traffic. Exactly. I mean, it's just, it's supposed to be, it's supposed to be the fabric of our faith. Yeah, the you know, ego death is, is what we're supposed to do every day. For the life, you know, Alexander Schmemann's great book, For the Life of the World. We are here to be spent for the life of the world. I mean, that is just, that is a spine upon which Christian spirituality, you know, sits. And so the concept that this is somehow a sufficient substitution, I have trouble, I have trouble embracing that. Yeah. So I I wrote some thoughts here as I, you know, to, to conclude here. And I wrote this. I mostly agree with just about everything he is saying here. I agree that his treatment was terrible, and I agree that the church needs to treat their gay members better. I disagree that he has anything much better to to offer. It might be marginally better. Certainly, he has kindness and warmth, and that does mean a great deal. But beyond that, it's a very slim margin of hope, especially when applied to the whole of the gay community. Mm-hmm. And And those are my... I guess my final. I mean, would it be fair him. to say that what what he what he offers is a coping mechanism? Yeah, not much more. Yeah, not much. For me, it would be a coping mechanism, and but I think it has <clears throat> it, it has a a short shelf life. Yeah, it won't carry you for twenty, thirty, forty years. I think so. And uh, so, Ray, I really like you. I think you're a great guy. I would love to have you come onto the show if you'd like, or at least just reach out to me. Let me know if I got anything wrong here. I'd love to talk to you. I think I uh, I think we'd get along. So hit me up. All right, we're moving on to Nate Collins. 
Uh, Nate Collins was the main speaker for, for this video, and he is also the founder and director of Revoice. Nate is the very soulful one in the bunch. He, he speaks with a lot of pathos. He speaks with a lot of gravity and heaviness, and he speaks really powerfully to the pain and to the sorrow that people are, that LGBT people experience. He starts by asking the congregation, why are you here tonight? He says, a lot of us here are looking for something fresh and a new community, but maybe there's something a bit deeper. Maybe you're looking for something solid and firm, something that you can hold on to. Or maybe you want to learn because you have friends. Maybe there are people in your life you love who experience homosexuality. But besides all these other reasons, one reason in particular stands out. He quotes the movie The Greatest Showman and the characters who are who are in a circus sing about the exclusion that they're experiencing. And I wrote down the quote here because it's just so sad and heartbreaking. The, uh, the lyrics to the song are, I am not a stranger to the dark. Hide away, they say, because we don't want your broken parts. I've learned to be ashamed of all my scars. Run away, they say. No one will love you as you are. And he says that there is such fatigue beneath these words. And then he just really the bulk of his talk is is identifying and pointing out the sorrow and fatigue that he and others feel in this life, in this gay celibate life. He says, quote, it is exhausting to feel like you have no option but to run away from love. Is it no wonder then that for many of us, the main reason we are here tonight is because we are tired? And he has this really powerful quote. It's a long one, but I'll just read the whole thing. I think it says a lot. I'll just say it. I am tired. I'm tired of feeling burdened by loneliness because I believe lies that I am unwanted. I'm tired of feeling burdened by shame because I think my orientation makes me less human. I'm tired of feeling burdened by expectations from others because I think so little of myself. I'm tired. I'm tired of people saying I'm using the wrong words. I'm tired of people saying I'm not using enough of the right words. I'm tired. I'm tired of hearing about gay people who have unsafe homes, angry homes, or no homes. I'm tired. I'm tired of the reality that gay people live with verbal abuse from their co-workers, bosses, neighbors, relatives, and even friends. I'm tired. I'm tired of being reminded over and over again that over 40% of homeless teenagers are LGBT, that gay and bi youth are three times more likely to seriously contemplate suicide than their straight friends, and they are almost five times more likely to have attempted suicide. I'm tired. I'm tired and grieved because 40% of transgender adults say they've attempted suicide and that 92% of those attempts were before the age of 25. I'm tired. I'm tired of seeing the fragility of life put on full display and the stories of gender and sexual minorities trying to eke by, squeak by every day of the week just to get by. I'm tired. There's a lot there. Mm. And I lament right along with him for a lot of these things. I too am tired because of all the abuse perpetrated against LGBT people. And so I am lamenting right there next to him. For threat of beating a dead horse, if we're going to lament the reality of gay teens and young people killing themselves, I also have to bring up the fact that, again, I almost killed myself in response to this theology. Mm-hmm. You know? And so if... If we're going to lament gay teenagers, I have to also lament the pain that I felt when I was in the middle of side B 
theology. Mm-hmm. I know that I haven't that I haven't explored much why it uh, it devastated me so much. Well, I'm hoping to get more into that. Also, and as I have pointed out again and again in this series, it wasn't for lack of loving people. It was the idea itself. Mm-hmm. I think some ideas are simply more intrinsically harmful than others. And I think that this is an intrinsically harmful idea. In response to his confession of fatigue, I want to say to that, you don't have to live like this, mm-hmm. is really what I want to say. There you can pay attention to the pain that you are feeling and know that it is saying something about your circumstances and you can respond in kind. Even though I know that that is incredibly hard, that is incredibly painful because religious identity and religious conviction go straight to our bones. Mm-hmm. And to to break that feels like a, an amputation. Right. And I get that. But for me, that amputation was the only choice to live a full life. Because I was fatigued. I was also in the same boat. I was fatigued and I had to choose the amputation. Mm -hmm. Even though I didn't know all the answers, even though I didn't know how it would all work out theologically. I'm not telling that to Nate Collins. I am telling that to other people who might need to hear it, for whom that might be a helpful word. So he goes on to say, how do we respond to this? We need to learn how to lament well. He brings up Jeremiah, who is like the, the, the king of lamenting. He is lamenting Jerusalem, and he brings up Jesus, who also lamented. And so he points to them as models for lament. So he says that, he says though that Jeremiah blame, or Jeremiah ends his note ends on a note of hope, that he ends his lament on hope. Jeremiah knew that his suffering was real, but also he knew that true lament ends in hope for deliverance. Nate says that this is true also of LGBT Christians who are struggling, and to which my question becomes this, how do you know deliverance is going to come, right? Good question. That's always my question. Because what happens when it just crushes you? We all need to consider that that is a possibility. Mm-hmm. What if Christ doesn't come through? And what if this does just crush you? Well, the answer that I was always given is, well, when you die, you'll be with him forever. So that's that, that will be your ultimate deliverance. Yeah. And, and, you know, as much as people protest to to white knuckling and that they aren't actually white knuckling, I, I believe them when they say that. I believe people when they say that they aren't white knuckling celibacy. I might be believing it very much on purpose, <laughs> but I do believe them. Mm-hmm. But then I also know plenty of other people who were white knuckling it. And it was just like, OK, we're just going to wait till I die because mm-hmm. that's the only way I'll experience freedom. Here's another thing that made me really furious. How can you... And maybe I'm overreacting, and you can tell me if my rage is out of place here. Okay. Okay. This is why I'm doing this with a person and not alone at the mic. (laughs) (laughs) You are lamenting LGBT suicides and attempted suicides and suicidality. And you are saying that, uh, and you're preaching that deliverance comes out of this pain When the person just before you said that he almost lost his life. Mm -hmm. This strikes me as very dangerous. Mm -hmm. When people are on the verge of losing their lives and they're in so much pain, like Raylo before him, who who spoke, and you're just going to tell them, just keep trekking, Mm -hmm. just keep going. 
and that's your message and to and, and to have that message be come right after someone who just admitted that a year ago they almost killed themselves yes do you see what i'm saying mm, i do that that strikes me as very dangerous the answer is to not tell people to lament the answer is to tell people to lament and change their minds in my view mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, it just strikes me as very reckless there is far too great a be and also here and and i know that ray Lowe was saying that his suicidality was in response to not being accepted from churches and not necessarily having to do the traditional ethic but here's the thing you already have people who are suicidal and then you're telling them that they have no hope of relationship you have people who are already struggling emotionally and then you're telling them vulnerable people that they should just give up on the hope of a relationship and you expect that not to crush people mm-hmm. you see what i'm saying i do and, and that to me just strikes me as very very dangerous mm-hmm. like that really worries me there's also just far too great a possibility that deliverance won't come and so you're telling people to just keep trekking hope for deliverance hope that christ will save you from this misery and all the while throwing these little bombs of you know you are presumably intrinsically broken your sexuality is so broken that you can't express it to people who are already deeply struggling mm-hmm. that is dangerous well absolutely A- another thing that that he said because and i, I didn't mean to interrupt you if you no 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 you're go good on. i just wanted to say you know when i think about nate collins address and what was my big takeaway is he goes through this list of these true and ever-present horrors of what's happening to people around the world who are not, you know, certifiably heterosexual, uh, which, of course, is the preferred way to be, according to the culture in which we live. And, you know, you read that list, that list you read. And actually, in my notes, I said, you know, the list you just read, actually, for me, is all the proof I need to make the choice I've made. Yeah, me too. <laughs> which, which, which would disturb him because he would go, "Oh no, no, no! That's not that's not that's not the path I wanted you to go down." And then he talks about the whole false prophets and the bad shepherds. And I feel like what he does is he ends his address. Mm, could you could you kind of explain what he means by that? Well, yeah, because he was he really he was using the story of Jeremiah's lament and talking about the fact that false prophets arise when there are bad shepherds to the flock. So I think what he was trying to show is how idols, prophets, and bad shepherds all play in this scenario of not getting people out of the circumstance they're in, or how they play a role in embedding them in in the in a context that they may maybe want to be free of. So I feel like what he does at the end of his address is instead of really going through that list of horrors and talking about what can really be done, it's almost like the end of the address turns to this call for action, this, you know, rallying of the troops. Yeah. You know, and, and I mean, he actually wrote down a quote. He said, suffering for doing what is right. Mm-hmm. And then he says this, and this is a quote I wrote, you know, as if the the audience to which he is speaking, which we would not have been there, but the audience to which we I speak, wanted to be, uh, Matt and I tried yeah. to go. <laughs> I mean, it, ideologically speaking, we we, we were not, not the intended no, audience. No, we were yeah. not the intended. But he would. He said this: 
that these people are sent by God like Jeremiah to find God's words for the church to eat them and make them our own to shed light on contemporary false teachings of idolaters, not just the false teaching of the progressive sexual ethic, but other more subtle uh, forms of false teaching. Yes, I noticed that too. So he really turns it towards, you know, calling the troops to prepare for almost battle. Prepare like for a we, fabulous gay like, battle. Yeah, we are, we, you know, <laughs> yeah. this, is, this is why we are here. So I guess I can only draw the conclusion that he took us down that path to say, this is how we will correct all of this stuff that I, all these ter- terrible things that I recounted to you in the beginning of my, of my address. Mm-hmm. This, because if blame has to be put somewhere, then I guess it's got to be on you and me. Exactly. Or other people. I mean, I don't know who, but the fact is, in other words, those who aren't at this conference or those who aren't in this theological camp, there. But then there's part of me that just goes, are you sure? Are you sure that we're, are you sure that we're the prime enemy? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I always want to just go back and say, what role are you playing in the creation of these of these scenarios that are playing out? You know, he brought up, and and I, I know I'm not offering sound argument or or you know very cogent arguments. This is coming from a place of very deep hurt for me, and, and so I'm kind of just spewing right now, mm-hmm. and I'm trying to do so without hurting people and without contempt. But one of the things that came to mind as he was, you know, coming against these false teachers, and and he quotes Christ saying, you know, they lay heavy burdens around people's neck and then don't lift a finger to help them. What I wrote was, I believe he is doing much the same thing. And that is how I personally experienced it. How is commanding all gay people on this planet and young gay people and elderly gay people and middle-aged gay people and gay people with spouses and adopted children and gay people who have built lives together and people just starting out on their romantic journey? How is that not putting heavy burdens around people's necks? And here's, so here's my dilemma with this. I really feel like what I'm hearing here is is a locating of the harm in attitude rather than ideology. And I'll be the first to admit, attitude does cause a lot of harm. You know, the attitude of the right to the Revoice Conference is deeply harmful and deeply hurtful and absolute bullshit. And I, and I wish that, that the Revoice Conference and the people in attendance weren't treated that way. Yeah. I really wish that. Ideology is also hurtful. And I see this attempt to kind of pivot away from that and because they don't believe that the ideology can change. And I didn't believe that it either. I, did, I didn't believe that the command could change. And so I had to do every single thing that I could to try to make it, to try to cushion it, to try to make it more loving, to try to make it more acceptable. When finally, for me, I just came to admit that the law was just bad. <laughs> it was just a bad law. It was just a rotten, evil law. And, you know, that immutability of the law against homosexuality, the immutability of it, the unmovability of it. I am suspicious of anything that won't budge. 
I am suspicious of anything that inflexible. When I encounter something that inflexible, and I think this is because of my experience in the church, that's when I want to throw it on the ground and shatter it to see what's on the inside. And so the inflexibility of it, I don't see that as a good thing. I don't see that as a virtuous thing. I, you know, one of my mantras is at the very end of the invocation of the satanic temple where they say that which will not bend must break. And anything that can be destroyed by truth must never be spared its demise. Mm. And so the idea that nothing is too holy, nothing is too sacred to be wrong and to be challenged. And so I want to encourage people, those who can have the courage, and I know that not everyone is able to right now because it just hurts too much or it's too hard or, or it's just ideologically impossible. And I get that. But for those who can, I encourage them to really push back against the law and see if it budges. Mm. Because if it's true, it will withstand your test. Very good point. Let me see if I have any other thoughts on this one. I... Yeah, he he says we have to lament, but we also have to trust that God, uh, trust God that he will deliver us in our own experience of unjust suffering. And so I appreciated that clarification that he does acknowledge that the gay experience of pain is unjust pain. And I do appreciate that. And I got the impression that he doesn't, that he wasn't just speaking about the treatment at the hands of the church, but also the internal struggles. And I, at least that's what I heard and that that is also an unjust struggle. I appreciated his acknowledgement of that. And and so, you know, I know that I've been angry in this episode and in the last episode, but I I appreciate their honesty. I appreciate that they are as transparent as they are being. Absolutely. And I think that's good. I think that's positive. Like I said, at the top of this series, I think we agree on 70%. We're still gay. We're still in this LGBTQ thing together. We just, we agree on the what, which is we want to live a life of flourishing. We want to see the LGBTQ community treated more justly and lovingly. We just disagree on the how. Do you have any more thoughts? Well, just, just to, just a general thought about what you just said, and that is I applaud the conference for its lack of apology are just about calling things as they are. I mean, yeah. they're, they're, they're giving, they, they have given very accurate, both widely cultural and culturally Christian analyses of what's, of what's going on, on in the world. They've not soft-pedaled it at all. And you know, if there's one good thing that could come out of this mm-hmm. it is if the traditional church does listen to that. Absolutely. That would be an extraordinary accomplishment if the church did stop and listen to these keynotes and acknowledge the harm. And I think that alone would be a very redemptive thing and would be a great success for this conference. I am not a, I've not attended many things like this in my lifetime. No, no shock there. But what I would say is this, Whereas I can imagine so many of these types of events in the past would have been really focused on the internal struggle, the, in, the internal condition. Maybe the reason the, the right wing of politics and the church is so disturbed is because this is, this is not just been about insides. This is about living outside, living outside 
in the church, living outside of the church, living outside in the culture. I mean, this is this was a bit of a pride rally. Yes, it absolutely was. <laughs> in the sense that, you know, just like the song from The Greatest Showman, this is us. We, You don't really get to ignore us anymore. Yes. And maybe that's why they got so pissed off. Absolutely. Because, it's very possible. Because is that too close to a slippery slope like oh no <laughs> next thing you know there's gonna be yeah there's gonna be you know every every evangelical denomination will be having you know gay gay pastors no i mean i think that's it's a little too soon to be worried about that um, <laughs> but i do think if it, only that's what we were worried I about just, i just think it's it's scaring them i think so too and which I think is such an indictment, isn't it? It really is. That here are people, well, let me say this. Here are people, if you are of a church that actually believes that you can be LGBTQ and Christian at the same time, of which I'm sure there are many who, that's an oxymoron and sorry. So, I mean, here you've got so-called Christians who say they are so-called LGBTQ and putting those two together. Well, there's enough reason to be afraid. Yep. But then to say, enough, mm-hmm. enough. What are we going to do? Because another thing that's come th- come through loud and clear is, what are we going to do to take care of these people who really exist in our churches? And that is, I, I think that is the question that this conference and that we are trying to answer. I think that's really the question. And then the conundrum for me is, given the theology that you still want to hold on to, and the so-called traditional sexual ethic that you want to embrace, where does that go together? This is what I don't see in these addresses. Not, I, I didn't see, I didn't see anyone actually deconstruct and, and reassemble that. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm asking for too much, but I really do want kind of like a roadmap. I really do like want, and, and maybe this is just my, you know, type A planner, obsessed, mm-hmm. obsessed with calendars, personality type, but I really like want to see it laid out. Like how do these, how do these two things match? How does lived experience of LGBTQ people and the traditional sexual ethic tell me a roadmap? Give me something because there are so many people suffering. There are so many people in anguish. There are so many young gay people in Christian families. And a lot of them, of course, not even close to all, but a few often come and talk to me mm-hmm. online. They find me online. They find me at the store where I work to talk to me because it is destroying them. This is urgent. Yeah. We really need a clear roadmap for how to do this. And until that happens, I honestly see the best option to be fully affirming of gay marriage. I don't see, or I did not see, perhaps I should re-listen to all of these multiple times, but I did not see a clear prescription for how the very things that they called out, the injustices that they named, were actually going to be addressed mm-hmm. by the advice the advice they offered. Other than just be nicer. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah, other than just be nice, other than just be kind, other than just be more loving, more kind. Don't be mean. Don't be an asshole. 
that's a great start. Everyone needs to not be an asshole. <laughs> um, <laughs> that should be a bumper I'm, sticker. I, and I know, I feel like I feel like we're beating a dead horse now, but that's not enough. No. For me, it's not enough. And I just, I got to see more. I got to see more of, of how, because, you know, I've seen so much of the gay world now. I've seen so much of the gay community, the trans community. I have so, so many gay friends of all ages, so many different races, so many different experiences and personality types, this incredibly diverse community of LGBT, LGBTQ people, and I'm just not seeing the connection. I'm not seeing how these, how these two things can fit together in a sustainable way. And that's what I want to see. And, yeah. and, and as long as they don't fit, I think it's just going to cause harm. In the eight months that I've been on this journey, of course, the start of the journey is, you know, was not the, was not the true commencement of of that. I mean, it's I'm 58 years old and I've been I've been living, you know, and with a known reality inside of me for decades. It was only recently that I decided, much like Ray Lowe, much like you, it's like it would be better to be dead than mm-hmm. to go on with this level of, you know dissonance. Can I tell our listeners what you said to me? Sure. You said eight months ago when you called me to your house to talk about this, that you realized that you might have another 30 years. You might have another several decades. 30 would be generous, but that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope for 30. Let's go with, okay, that's fine. We'll hope for 30. Um, that's fine. But you, you could be on this planet for a couple or more decades. Mm-hmm. And you came to the realization that if they're going to look like the life you've lived, you don't want to live those final years of your life. Yeah. You would rather just die. If, if, it's going to, if life is going to keep looking what life has looked like for the past decades, you'd rather just not live. Mm-hmm. And that's what you told me. Yeah. Yeah. And that is not a reflection on my wife, my children, my career my church, my faith, it was, it describes for those who can't comprehend it, a level of what it feels like to, to live life not alive, mm-hmm. to live life in a way that feels unlivable, you know, and I, and I would, you know, I would not be the least bit surprised that some of my brothers and sisters who spoke at this conference would chastise me and say, lay down your life, surrender, obey, you know, rejoice in the Lord. You are, you know, I I know, I know all those words. I know them well. And I'm not saying that I don't believe them, but I guess I came to the point of wondering the truth of those words, do they only apply to non-gay people? Yeah. (laughs) Do those words apply to me as a gay person? Could those words even apply to me as a homosexual in a relationship with another homosexual? Mm-hmm. Because you don't get to question the integrity of my spiritual life or my faith. It is it is absolutely true. I am I am filled with the Holy Spirit and I am sealed. Mm-hmm. And I will live with God forever and I am being transformed into God likeness. This is this is theosis. This is the. This is what the Christian spiritual life is. So 
my same-sex attracted nature does not prohibit that from being true. They do not cancel each other out. That might be news for some of you, but that's just the truth. <laughs> and so for those who would hear this and can't imagine what it's like to desire death as opposed to living, it's it's a difficult concept because you're thinking, how could you really, do you, did you really want, yeah, I did. Because it was like, the inability, the, the inability to breathe, mm -hmm. the inability to hope, the inability to long. You know, it just, it felt, it felt like there was a vacuum inside of me that could not be filled. Yeah. Does that make sense to you? Absolutely. I am tracking with every single word. Okay. So you get it. And for those who can't imagine it, just know that you've met someone today who knows exactly what I mean, whether you know they're gay or not. And they live in a culture that is not really disturbed at the thought that people live this way. I think that's a great note to end on. And unfortunately, we live in a church culture that is equally undisturbed. Exactly. Exactly. I think, I think the stories that have been told in this video from Revoice should, should give everyone pause and should horrify everyone. And the level of comfort we have with this kind of suffering that I see from a lot of people is just deeply horrifying to me. So thank you, Revoice, for voicing truth about the current conditions. Absolutely. It, it does a lot. It means a lot. We are grateful for that. Now, yes. we all need to be searching for better answers and clear means of application. Yes. That's what we need. Yes. All right. Well, I think that is the end of this episode. We have, uh, we have one more video left. Thank you so much for holding on with us and listening to this. I think this is a really important conversation. So thank you for holding on and staying with us. For anyone from Revoice who wants to reach out to me and, uh, or anyone in attendance or anyone who agrees, anyone, anyone in that camp, anyone from that, from that traditional ethic, uh, you are welcome to reach out to me. Please find me at sbradfordlong.com. You can email me there. You can find me on Twitter at Stephen B. Long. Uh, I would love to hear from you. Uh, and also, I would love to hear from everyone else, of course. Well, I need to thank my team, Carson Green and Justin Caleb Bryant, for all the help you have uh, you've given me in keeping sane and the technical side of this show. I also need to announce that my Patreon is now finally live. For anyone who wants to financially support my work, go to patreon.com forward slash Stephen Bradford Long. You can donate $1 or $5 a month and you will get exclusive access to me as a creator. Uh, we can hang out and talk on there. You will also get one podcast a week, one separate podcast every week called The House of Heretics. It's an unedited podcast in which Justin and I have rambling, unedited conversations about faith and doubt and life, usually involving alcohol, and they should probably really be edited, but they aren't. So uh, if you are able to financially give, 
I would so appreciate it. If not, and I certainly understand, please keep listening to the show, keep sharing it with your friends, keep listening and uh, commenting on it. It means so much, and I will keep releasing one podcast a week, every week, forever, until I die. (laughs) The music... The music is by the Jelly Rocks from the album Bang and Whimper. You can find it on iTunes and Spotify or wherever you listen to music. This show is written and edited by me, Stephen Long, and is a production of Rock Candy Media. And we will see you next week. <laughs>